Famished Craving, Reflections on the Role Fame Has Played in Human Affairs, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 4. If we see that biblical ontology, that is to say, Jeremiah, Jesus, Isaiah, Paul, is the ontology grounded in the experience, the prayerful relationship to the living God. That's the biblical ontology, if we, if we think of it that way. Then God is dead. What does that mean? Well, it has all kind, as Nietzsche's going to say, I'll quote Nietzsche here in a little bit, he said, well, culturally it's absolutely devastating and so on and so forth. What does it mean ontologically? Well, I don't know. We scratch our heads. I don't know. And then we read down in Hegel, and Hegel says, there's this struggle for recognition, a universal struggle for recognition. And what's happening? It's another form of ontology. It's the false form of ontology. If I can get enough people to recognize me, I will feel real again. So those are the two ontologies that are struggling in our world. And Hegel, I think, puts his finger on it. Now, Nietzsche, who's writing later, who, by the way, and I don't know the history of ideas well enough to say this for sure, but I feel sure that Nietzsche got it from Hegel. I mean, he got it from lots of places because Hegel's ideas quickly be became disseminated throughout European intellectual life. But So Nietzsche's writing much later in the process, well, not much later, but 60, 70 years later in the process. And Nietzsche's not talking so much about the, the, the universal quest for recognition. You see, when Hegel says universal quest for recognition, he's like Freud. When Freud's, Freud analyzed the psychological problem and he saw the rivalry between the, the parents and children, or you know, fathers and sons and stuff like that, he thought, well, this must be, or he, he thought he saw it. You know. It may have been the, you know, the, the, the beam in his own eye, but in any event, he universalized it. He said, ah, oh, this means everybody, this is what the world's, all, the world's always been this way. It's all been Oedipal. And he didn't realize he was analyzing a particular historical moment, the, the, the crisis of, of the modern world. And Hegel, earlier on, was doing the same thing. He says, well, look, I look around, I see this incredible quest for recognition. And so it must be universal. It must always be this way. But he didn't realize he's analyzing the breakdown of culture in Europe. Well, Nietzsche's writing later on, and he doesn't see the universal quest. What he sees is resentiment, the, the uh, French word which is a little more resonant, a little more a full-bodied idea. But Nietzsche's idea of resentment. He says, I see it everywhere. He blames it on the Christians. It's very complicated in Nietzsche. But nevertheless, he, he sees that what's going on, what he sees in Europe is resentment. What's resentment? It means the quest for recognition is going on, nobody's ever winning, and nobody's ever losing so profoundly that they give it up, and so it just keeps festering. And the juggling is always going on. There's never a stop to it. Nobody ever, you know, it's musical chairs with no, but the game's never over. See? One gets to a certain place, but it's the next day uh, the claimants to the throne are there, and so on. So resentment is the struggle for recognition that is frenzied and scandalized, to use the biblical term, because it is incessant. There's no coronation. It doesn't. It can never conclude. And, and, and so it finally comes down to Andy Warhol saying, everybody gets 15 minutes. You see what I mean? It's total flux, because there's no way to stop it. There's no, the only way to stop it is to sacralize, is to, is to have some sacral figure, or to, to have some permanent, observed of all observers. One finally achieves it, but you can never achieve it. It can never be because of one's achievement. Because if you reach it because of one's achievement, then somebody else can say, hey, I can do that. If being on top has anything to do with merit, then it will always be unstable. Because somebody else can say, I can do it better than that. Or I can do that. And so the contest goes on. It has to be arbitrary. And that's what Gerard says. I'll quote something in a second. Nevertheless, uh, Eisenberger says in, his, in, his, in this book that I've quoted from several times, he says, you don't have to be a Hegelian to see that the longing for recognition is a fundamental anthropological fact. 
And I would say, I don't think so. I mean, it is in a way. But it's a fundamental anthropological fact if we recognize that to be recognized by God is a form of recognition that works ontologically and spiritually works. To walk in the eyes of the Lord, you see, there's a, that, that's a form of recognition that has ontological consequences, uh, important ontological consequences. But so I would I would add that as a little footnote to Eisenberger's comment that the longing for recognition is fundamental anthropological fact. The the uh, longing for recognition of one's peers is a very modern anthropological fact. I mean, it's been around forever, as as Browdy will explain. But the widespread form of the disease is modern. So then Eisenberger says, the notion that this longing for recognition has ever been realized is illusory. The desire for recognition, still quoting Eisenberger, the desire for recognition, first in the cities, then across the whole world, has gathered a momentum that a certain philosopher in 1806 could never have dreamed of. But you see how he's seeing it. He's seeing it as a historical phenomenon. It began in the cities and then spread all over the world. Everybody caught the disease. What's the disease? The need for recognition. What's that? The need for some kind of ontological substantiation that has in, in which the transcendent does not come into play at all. It's the false transcendence that fame provides. Okay, so, first of all, Eisenberger sees it as a historical phenomenon. And then he s makes the observation, many people have made it, which is that the in the Western world, the demands for freedom and equality were driven by the insistence that recognition could no longer be the exclusive privilege of those on top of the social hierarchy. You see? So the demands for freedom and equality are driven by this need for recognition. And then Eisenberger says something that's half true. He says, the more, so he tries to analyze it. He says, the more freedom and equality people gain, the more they expect. If these expectations are not fulfilled, then almost everyone can feel humiliated. The longing for recognition is never satisfied. And I would say his analysis has too many moving parts. For one thing, he doesn't explain. Uh, he says, if these expect expectations are not fulfilled, the implication is, if they are fulfilled, everything's fine. Uh, but I would say they are inherently not fulfilled. I think one has to analyze the disease at a deeper level. Girard has has uh, analyzed it, I think, more profoundly, and he says this in one of his books, quote, In a world where individuals are no longer defined by the place they occupy by virtue of their birth or some other stable and arbitrary factor, the spirit of competition can never be appeased once and for all. Indeed, it gets increasingly inflamed. Everything rests upon comparisons that are necessarily unstable and insecure since there are no longer any fixed points of reference. So Girard says everything rests in the modern, he's describing the modern situation, everything rests upon comparisons that are necessarily unstable and insecure since there are no longer any fixed points of reference. So I just wanted to bring to you again, something we talked about back when we did that series on the self and its sources, which was a review of Virginia Woolf's novel, The Waves, that marvelous scene in there, which to me epitomizes the problem so, so well. And it is when the boys at the boarding school go into the chapel, and Woolf is describing the constant comparison that's going on in the eyes. It's all done from inside the eyes of each of them, this whole novel. And they're constantly uh, talking to themselves and looking through their eyes at the others and in competition and so on. And they go in, and, and there's an interesting figure in the novel, you know, who's the, who's, because Virginia Woolf knew T.S. Eliot pretty well. There's this figure, Lewis, who's the sort of T.S. Eliot figure. He can't wait to get into the chapel. He loves to walk in in procession. He feels, he feels expanded in the chapel. He feels at home and so on. But there's this other figure who's the opposite. His name is Neville, and he just can't stand it. 
and he can't stand it because the headmaster who preaches in the chapel is a total windbag, and, who, and uh, he, just, he just rejects it all. So he says, they go into the chapel, and Neville says, Neville is thinking, the brute, meaning the headmaster, the brute menaces my liberty when he prays, which is a marvelous phrase, isn't it? I mean, it's such a, it's the modern banner, you know, the brute menaces my liberty when he prays, hemmed in by that. And one has to say, he's rejecting, well, let's, let me go on. And then he says, the words of authority are corrupted by those who speak them. I jibe and mock at this sad religion. So he rejects it because the medium or the conduit for the religious tradition is flawed, is humanly flawed. And it'll be a cold day in hell when it isn't, you know. It's going to be humanly flawed. The, The conduit, which is to say the church, will always be humanly flawed. And so, and this is the this is the hypocrisy of it. People will say the implication is my regard for this tradition is so pure that I can't stand these flawed uh, conduits for it. You know, so, I, so I'm not a joiner. I don't go. I'm not going to have anything to do with that because my reverence for it is too great. I mean, it's, I think it's a little weird. It's always going to be flawed. And Neville, but Neville finds the flaw as a as a wonderful excuse for writing it off. But the question is, what does it stand for? What it stands for (coughs) is some kind of transcendence. Even though it passes through a human medium, it's a transcendence. Because whatever the, however much a windbag the headmaster might be, he's trying to call these boys' attention to something beyond himself, something transcendent, to the God of the biblical revelation. So, by objecting to the whole thing because of the flawed nature of the medium, one rejects the whole notion of transcendence. Almost the next sentence reads as follows. Now, this is still Neville talking, now I will lean sideways as if to scratch my thigh so I can see Percival, who's this marvelous creature down at the other end of the the bench that he's, he's sitting on, right? Now, Neville is, is homosexual. It, the fact of his homosexuality is not totally unrelated to, the, to this dynamic, but for our purposes here, it's, it's, it's not particularly germane. Nevertheless, he looks down and sees this marvelous Neville, who's fabulous, you see. And he says, So I, sa- I shall see Percival. There he sits, upright among the smaller fry. He breathes through his straight nose rather heavily, his blue and oddly inexpressive eyes are fixed with pagan indifference upon the pillar opposite. He sees nothing. He hears nothing. He is remote from us all in a pagan universe. See, this is the idolatry that springs up when? Like that, when the old tradition falls apart. The need for an idol. And then he says, look, he flicks his hand to the back of his neck. Some little gesture, totally meaningless gesture. He flicks his hand to the back of his neck. For such gestures, one falls hopelessly in love for a lifetime, says Neville. And then he says, Dalton, Jones, Edgar, and Bateman flick their hands to the back of their necks, but they do not succeed. (laughs) I mean, Virginia Woolf in this novel is just talking about how this mimetic thing operates once, and it's particularly powerful, it's ravenous once there's no transcendent reference point, you see. And that's just what Gerard's talking about when he says, everything rests upon comparisons that are necessarily unstable and insecure since there are no longer any fixed points of reference. Well, when, when Nietzsche said God is dead and when Hegel said this hymn, God himself has died, is, a, is the expression par excellence of the spirit of our age. Those are ways of saying that the issue of whether or not there's a God is an irrelevant issue. That's what it means that God is dead. It doesn't mean, you know, some great theological thing, oh, well, I think there's no longer any God. Or, there, or It means that the issue of whether or not there is a God is totally irrelevant to the modern world. That's what it means. And Nietzsche's madman says it has tremendous consequences. And it's, it, there are consequences that are absolutely parallel to those that occurred in the chapel with Neville 
changing his focus of attention from the headmaster and via the headmaster to the transcendent to this to this character sitting on a absolute horizontal line down at the other end of the bench you see it's the same thing and so nietzsche says what happens when god is dead the madman says nietzsche's madman says what were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun whither is it moving now whither are we moving away from all suns are we not plunging continually backward sideward forward in all directions is there any up or down he sees it a tremendous crisis the death of god says nietzsche is the greatest modern event quote quoting the madman in zarathustra the event itself is far too great too distant too remote from the multitude's capacity for comprehension even for the tidings of it to be thought of as having arrived yet much less may one suppose that many people know as yet what this event really means in quote and in the past i've looked at it in terms of its anthropological and cultural ramifications and now i want to see it more in terms of its ontological ramifications lesek kolakowski was a social scientist at the university of chicago he's now retired and living in england but uh, he wrote some time ago the following quote the collapse of christianity which the enlightenment awaited with glee proved in so far as it actually occurred to be almost contemporaneous with the collapse of the enlightenment itself which is a clear in quote which is a, a clear indication that the enlightenment was the attempt to franchise a secularized version of the christian moral ethos and the problem is of course that the christian moral ethos has to be rooted in in religious experience otherwise it very quickly it uh, evaporates eventually those who actually achieved their liberation from the christian religious tradition exhausted the christian moral resources upon which they had originally based their attack on christianity for having successfully abandoned the tradition they had no way to renew these resources so in the 18th and 19th centuries the liberation from religion that the enlightenment was able to achieve and in later on in in his book browdy talks about uh, thomas carlyle who wrote a book in the middle of the 19th century entitled on heroes and hero worship and in there carlyle says the following and i want to read it as an intro to something i want to talk about here in a second carlyle says quote examine the man who lives in misery because he does not shine above other men who goes about producing himself such a creature is among the wretchedest sight seen under this sun a great man a poor morbid purient empty man fitter for the ward of a hospital than for a throne among men he cannot walk on quiet paths unless you look at him wonder at him he cannot live it is the emptiness of the man not his greatness because there is nothing in him he hungers and thirsts that you will find something in him in quote well that's pretty i think a pretty powerful analysis in the middle of the 19th century except for the thing about in him you see i think it is of course in him but the biblical tradition is much more powerful and mysterious when it says we live in Christ we live and move and have our being in God so it's when we change it to being in us then we get into this whole psychological thing we get into jung and so on and i think it doesn't go anywhere however w- one of the things that fascinates me about this carlisle passage is this notion of uh, s- th- this person trying to produce himself and again we have the problem of ontological density and trying to generate some kind of substance out of out of either a psychological or a social social matrix the idea that that ontological substance is inherently within me is a modern misreading of the prophetic and new testament traditions whose ontological implications i want to continue to try to draw out so carlyle's 
observation sets us up for another revisiting of, a, of, of an old observation or an old text that I quoted. And again, I've, I've been bringing out a lot of things, but I, 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 try, I want to bring out the things that I think best characterize the problem. And so some of them we've used before, but, but I feel that I, I find the revisiting of these things is, is helpful, and I hope you do too. I'm a little... I feel awkward and apologetic about this one because it inevitably involves me in critiquing somebody, and I don't want—I don't want to be scapegoating or judging. Judge not, lest you be judged, and so on. I try—I I want to remember that. Uh, but I'm using this. This is from the New York Times last summer. There was an article, and I quoted from it again sometime last year when we were doing something. But I want to return to it because it's so apropos for understanding the modern ontological problem. And it was an article in which the New York Times reporter, Trip Gabriel, talked about and analyzed the fame that was suddenly achieved by one Donovan Leach, who is the uh, son of the rock, folk rock singer of the 60s, Donovan. And Donovan Leach suddenly hit the New York scene, became very uh, famous and fashionable. He was a model, became a model for Calvin Klein, uh, and uh, he started a band, and uh, it seemed like everything he touched turned to fame and uh, so on. And so this New York Times tried to analyze the situation. And early on in the fairly extensive article, the Times reporter says, Mr. Leach waded into the scene during a showing of New York collections, the fashion scene, last October and again in April. He appeared at show after show in a pack of other celebrities' children. The cachet of their last names helped win them front row seats. So the fame problem is there. These are people whose parents were famous. Now, there's a little bit of something we could do with hereditary kingship, which is, you could say, hereditary fame. The purpose of hereditary kingship, you know, was to prevent competition when the old king dies so that there wouldn't be any question who the next king is going to be because as soon as there's a question, you have competition, you have civil war, everything could go up in smoke, you see. So the hereditary transition from king to king to king was a way, it didn't matter, it was like, it was as though they, I mean, this is not how it happened to them, but it was as though they said, look, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Let's just have something, you see. Let's have it be the first son, okay? Anything. Anything but a, but a civil war after every king dies. Well, I mention that here because here we have the um, these sons and daughters of the famous, who, who the, the cachet of whose last name gets them front row seats, but that's not enough because... There's a whole group of them. You see, it says a pack of celebrities' children. Well, a pack, you see, that's the problem. So one has to break out of the pack. So uh, then it says, um, Mr. Leach and his friends, reflecting a cutting edge, served as models and muses for each other and for others aspiring to their, their degree of notoriety and celebrity one wants to pause over this term, the cutting edge, when one talks about fame. Because the little sacrificial innuendo is appropriate. Uh, this, the, this, is, this is a form, this is a, an attenuated form of the primitive sacred. Well, there's something arbitrary about it. This is what, this is, you see, one of the things that happens in the course of the last two, three hundred years in, Western, in the Western world is that we have learned more and more about this process and the more we learn about it, the more it misfires. And this is the difference between, say, say um, Don Quixote. Cervantes knew about it. Shakespeare knew about it. But then the more the, the novelist began to explore it, the more they got into it and saw how it was really working, the less it worked. And all of us know more about it, you see. We now carry on this this game at a very convoluted level. So we're always trying not to be 
like the one who's trying to get the attention. So the only way to get attention is to try not to get attention. And, I mean, it gets very convoluted. And that's because we know more and more about it. And the more we know about it, the less it works. Because it only works, it's like the sacrificial system itself. It only works when it's completely veiled, when its mechanisms are completely veiled. But the, but the novelist in the Western world began to unveil the mechanism. And so you get Flaubert and Dostoevsky and these people who are just saying, well, look, this is, and Shakespeare, saying, hey, you want to see how it works? Look here, and pull the curtain back. There you have it. See that triangle? That's how it works, folks. And once you start to realize that, it starts to it works in very perverse and convoluted ways and doesn't really work. And so we now know it's arbitrary. So the New York Times article says, Mr. Leash, who is tall and spindly, was arriving on the fashion scene at a lucky moment. Emaciated young women were in the ascendant and there was a demand for male versions of the same look. He was instantly dubbed a male waif. So it was completely arbitrary. He happened there at the right moment, which is, this is the way modern fame works. We know it's arbitrary. You have to just be there at the right moment and lightning strikes and, and you're it for a while. The, now that we know it's arbitrary, it's also very short-lived. We know that it happens and then it's gone. So it says Mr. Leash cultivated an androgynous look, which was the look that's in, uh, and uh, and he began to uh, cut his hair in a certain way and walk around with what the New York Times art, uh, journalist calls a dandified wardrobe that harkened back to the 70s rock stars. It really harkened back to, uh, you know, Lord Byron and the dandies and the fops of the 19th century. But he got caught. I would say he got caught because then it says, or it quotes Candy Pratt's Price, who's a fashion director for, for Vogue. It quotes, the article quotes her as saying, it's a very young David Bowie act he's pulling, in quote. <laughs> in other words, he got caught with a model. We must never do that. One must always be able to avoid any identification with the model. So you always have to customize it. So nobody, you're not caught imitating. Of course, we're always imitating, but one has to, one has to put a little spin on it so that nobody really sees the relationship between the model and the imitator. Some uh, 70s rock star. Leo Browdy, who wrote this book that we'll be looking at, says, quote, As we have a collage vision fostered by the rapidly escalating demands on our attention, so we have collage personalities made up of fragments of public people who are in turn made up of fragments themselves. Well, she says, it's, it's a very young David Bowie act he's pulling. You can imagine, you see to suddenly have it acknowledged, I mean, to, right there in the New York Times, that it was mimicry? Oh. So, but this is, by the way, I want to, I, I empathize with this man, I do. Uh, first of all, he's young, he's in his 20s, and uh, he's, he's, I mean, we all have to take responsibility, but he, he's, he's being sucked into this machine. He doesn't know what's going on. But one has to see behind it. Quote, Growing up in the Hollywood Hills of California, Mr. Leash scarcely knew his celebrated father. His parents separated when he was three. Quote, the fact that we have the same name and the fact that strangers would talk about him with great importance when I was young was just sort of confusing, end quote. Now, we're talking about ontological problems here. We're talking about the, the lack of ontological density, the lack of ontological moorings. Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman says to the specter of his older brother, Ben, he says, you're just what I need, Ben. Well, Dad left when I was such a baby, and I never had a chance to talk with him, and I still feel kind of temporary about myself. And as we've talked about in the past, this business of fatherlessness is so profound in our world. It, too, is connected to the biblical revelation both in a positive and in a negative sense, because, as I've said, the whole problem of fathers as the representative of the of this cultural system comes into question when we're undergoing a transformation of the cultural system. The New York Times quotes Mr. Leash's personal publicity agent, who says, quote, he, Mr. Leash, 
is a publicist's dream. Well, I shouldn't even mention these things. It makes me, I feel bad about even bringing this up. I mean, I want to say, if I thought the, the disease that this young man has was unique to himself and only his, uh, his fellow uh, fashion industry uh, aficionados or something, then there would be no reason to mention it. But I think it, it gives us a vivid example of a, of a problem that is widespread in our world and getting all the more so. The New York Times says, quote, his challenge, Mr. Leash's challenge, is to break through to the mainstream before his moment expires. Before his moment expires. And this is where, of course, the Andy Warhol revelation comes in. Andy Warhol was continuing the revelation. Andy Warhol, in a sense, was was the figure who had to come after Dostoevsky. He had to say, well, it lasts 15 minutes. It's perfectly arbitrary. It could happen to anybody. Probably will. You say, or... You say... And then Mr. Leash says... now. Keep this in mind. Let me correlate two things. When I quoted from the Virginia Woolf thing, uh, Neville looks down, he admires, he, he admires Percival, and he says, he flicks his hand to the back of his neck, for such gestures one falls hopelessly in love for a lifetime. In other words, some little gesture, suddenly everything focuses on that. The New York Times says, quoting from Mr. Leash, quote, if I could just take 2% of the camp 2% of the androgyny and mix it down into some little formula that'll click, even if it's just one little ridiculous move that I do with my hand all the time, or some little swish, or the way I sing a line. That's all it takes, he said. And then it ends dot, 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 and the article ends this way. He left the thought uncompleted, but it's clear that the track he expects to leave on the cultural landscape is as evanescent as the flash of a photographer's strobe. You see? Evanescent as the flash of a photographer's strobe. Evanescent, the, the, the word uh, vanus, which is the root for that, means empty. Well, he says, his challenge is to break through to the mainstream before his moment expires. And I would say that knowing not only that the opportunity to snatch at fame is one that appears and disappears in a flash, but also that fame itself is perfectly arbitrary, fickle, and short-lived. Knowing that and still seeking it is a recipe for nihilism. So let me, let me um, uh, move to some loftier conclusion. Browdy says, quote, the ignorance of what fame means and what it can bring may itself be a hallmark of our period. And again in another place he says, lurking behind every chance to be made whole by fame is the axe man of further dismembering. Now you see that, you see that fragmentation, that dissolving effect. The sacrificial metaphor here should not be completely written off. The, the axe man of further dismembering. Because to, to achieve that kind of fame in this world, what I'm trying to do is see the problem of fame in terms of the problem of the sacred and the cultural collapse and the ontological uh, ramifications of it. We were told in the New York Times article that the goal of Mr. Leach and his, his fellow aspirants for fame was to be on the cutting edge. And then Browdy tells us that lurking behind every chance to be made whole by fame is the axe man of further dismembering. You see the, the sacrificial metaphors there, which I think we don't want to draw out too boldly, but at the same time they have to, we have to at least mark them. 
being on the cutting edge, as Mr. Leach and his fellow aspirants aspire to be, is not only to invite the cutting edge to fall on oneself at the appropriate moment, but since as one manipulates the machine, the, the uh, machine of fame, as one manipulates it, one realizes how arbitrary and fickle it really is. One knows for sure that sooner or later the cutting edge will fall on oneself. As to say, it's all. Mr. Leach is already talking about the before the moment passes, you see. He's already inside the, the uh, Andy Warhol revelation about the arbitrariness and temporariness of this thing. So, again, what do we have here? We have a situation where one agrees to the contract. The contract is that one, to be on the cutting edge, one does a certain thing, it lasts for a certain period, and then the axe falls. Now, the axe falls means your reign is over, and it also means that there has, in the course of that reign, there has occurred the axe man of further dismemory. That is to say that when it falls and your reign is over, you are psychologically and ontologically in worse shape than you were when it started. But one agrees to it. And what is that but another parallel to the anthropology that Kennedy was talking about in the African tribe. You see, that the one who reigns agrees to this very dark contract. One has that moment of power, of kingship, of reign, it, and it's for the African king it was seven or eight years, and in the Warhol universe it's 15 minutes or some somewhere in between. But however long it is, when it's over, it's over, and the ontological problem that it, that it briefly relieved uh, comes back in spades. So it's a psychological or ontological version of the same contract. So all of that to come back to the Gospel of John. See, I, the biblical tradition works apocalyptically, you know. There's a certain one. The, the apocalyptic element in the biblical tradition is absolutely true. What I'm trying to get at now is an ontological apocalypse. I'm trying to picture an ontological apocalypse. Something that one says, ah, you know what, there is an abyss there. There's an abyss there that one might fall into with very little hope of ever getting out of it. There's always hope. And the, and the, and the hand of the Redeemer is always there. Of course. But I'm, there's an apocalyptic element, and all I'm trying to do is, is to ring the changes on that apocalyptic sensibility in terms of ontology and psychology rather than in terms of history and culture. So we go back, and the, only, and the purpose of that, that uh, apocalyptic element is to get our attention in a way. I mean, it's also true that it can happen, but then we go back to the biblical tradition, we realize what it is offering us. Human glory, says Jesus, means nothing to me. I know you only too well. You have no love of God in you. I have come in the name of my Father, and you refuse to accept me. If someone else should come in his own name, you would accept him. That's a little bit like Neville in the looking down. He would... He, can't stand this windbag up here who represents the Christian tradition and is trying to uh, uh, raise his eyes to something uh, transcendent. But someone who comes in his own name, he can he can accept that. The the headmaster who's maybe a windbag and maybe a flawed character, but he's at least not coming in his own name. Neville doesn't want anything to do with him. He looks down the road to find somebody who's coming in his own name. And so Jesus says, how can you believe since you look to each other for glory and are not concerned with the glory that comes from the one God? So I want to end on, the, on the, a very brief little reflection about the glory that comes from the one God. And I want to do so on the basis of a little observation made uh, in a book by an Orthodox monk, a Greek Orthodox monk. And the name of the book is the monk of Mount Athos, and it's the story of another monk, Staret Silouan, 
who died in 1938. And the book is written by Archimandrite Sulfury. And there's a little passage in it I want to quote to you, but because the passage talks about the word hypostasis, or hypostasis in Greek, I want to just go back to the etymology of that word for a second. In the dictionary I have, hypostasis has the following definition. A philosophical definition, which means the essence or underlying reality. A theological definition, which has two parts. Uh, one is any of the persons of the Trinity. The Trinity, the Trinity is related. The Trinitarian, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are related by hypostatic. They, they enjoy a hypostatic relationship or a hypostatic union. And it also has to do with Jesus, the relationship between Jesus' human and divine nature in, in classical Christian theology. But another definition will help us as well, and that is, quote, a settling of solid particles in a fluid, something that settles to the bottom of a fluid, a sediment, which also helps bring, bring us back to this question of ontological density. So it, the word literally means hypostasis. Hupo in Greek means under, and stasis means to stand. Hypostasis means the foundation upon which one is standing the grounding of one's being. The term is used interestingly in the New Testament and nowhere more interestingly, I think, than in the letter to the Hebrews. One is in Hebrews 1, 3. The, the text says, He, meaning Christ, the Son, is the reflection of God's glory. Now we're back to that, you see. And bears the imprint of God's own being. And so the word hypostasis is translated as being, God's own being. You see, Jesus is the hypostasis of God. Or Jesus is the hypostatic manifestation of God. And this fits with the Gospel of John's notion of I and the Father are one and so on. And then it says in Hebrews 3.14, we... Christians, we shall remain co-heirs with Christ only if we keep a grasp on our first confidence. And the word confidence is a translation of hypostasis. And what is confidence but that kind of grounding, that sense of with faith, that confidence, hypostasis. And that's what the word means, to understand. You could say hypostasis reminds us that understanding is not a cognitive process. It's an ontological process. See, that's why it can never be explained. Faith leads to knowledge. Knowledge doesn't lead to faith. To understand is to be in a hypostatic relationship to the source of all understanding, to the source of all knowledge, to the ground of one's being. That's what it means to understand. And so here's... Here's the passage from the book that I mentioned before, uh, written by Archimandrite Sophery. Genuine spiritual life, which is utterly concrete and positive, excludes the imagination. There is no other way for men to seek intercourse with the divine than by personal prayer to a personal God. The final stage of revelation is the revelation of a personal God, a hypostatic God. And then he has parentheses. I prefer the Greek word hypostasis to avoid the technicalities of the terms individual or personal. So this is, this, this is another way of talking about what we often talk about as individual personal. But it's a, it's a religious or theological way of talking about it. And then he says, the hypostatic God can only be known through revelation by God appearing to man or revealing himself. Let's say it's a gift. The revelation is a gift. When God as hypostasis reveals himself to man in this direct contact, even though it is still through a glass darkly, man will become aware of his own hypostasy, his own groundedness in that revelation. As to say, when you could correlate this, this is too technical a way, but you could correlate this with the prologue to the Gospel of John. 
He says, when God as hypostasis reveals himself to man in this direct contact, man will become aware of his own hypostasis. That is to say, uh, everything that comes to be comes to be. That's the Gospel of John's way of talking about it. Everything that comes to be comes to be through this God. Being now in the, you know, in the sense of ontology. Real being. We go through these things. You know, one of the things I do is I collect these little phrases, these little revelations that are infinitely fascinating and, and, and serve as laser beams for focusing the modern issue. And so we've had ontological density and ontological moorings and so on. And now I want to include in that list of sort of hermeneutical tools the notion of a hypostatic existence, which is not individual existence. It's not personal existence in the ordinary sense of the term. On the other hand, it's the source of all real individuality, the source of all real uniqueness, the source of real personal existence. But it's not autonomous. It's hypostatic. And it's the biblical, sub, it's the biblical form of subjectivity par excellence. It's, it's the... It's, Jeremiah and Jesus and Paul, you see. So, hypostatic existence as a form of existence and the only form, ultimately. By the way, I don't think it has to be in a Christian. I'm not saying this in a, in a sectarian way because it can, can happen in other, in other religious contexts and other religious venues in their own way. What's unique about Christianity is its, I think, its historical role of, of desacralizing the world in a religious way, but the, the other religions uh, are, are capable of inviting their participants into this same hypostatic uh, existence. And I think that's absolutely foundational. And that's where, uh, that's where ec- ecumenical dialogue is, could be tremendously rich. But that relationship, according to uh, Archimandrite Sophri, is based on a pers- on personal prayer to a personal God. At that point, you see, we're, in, we're into evangelization or something, or we're, we're written off as, as uh, you know, tent revivalist. As soon as you get anywhere near that solution to the problem, you're written off as a tent revivalist. Even believing Christians don't want to talk that way because it's a little embarrassing, you know. We have all these important social problems we should... Or psychological problems we should be dealing with. But if this is, if what this man is saying is true, and I think it is, then one has to find a way to break the news. So the hypostatic subjectivity is the subjectivity that the biblical tradition talks about. And I would say it comes by its ontological density honestly. That is to say, it receives it as a gift. Just as Paul said of justification. It's a gift. It is, as Jesus says in the Gospel of John, the glory that comes from the one God. And here glory in its human manifestation might be a synonym for dignity. To achieve a sense of dignity. That one's life has weight. It has meaning. It does not require other people looking on it does not require any kind of uh, any kind of uh, notoriety in the social order. It has weight and substance and dignity because of this hypostatic relationship. So I suppose it's always a problem in theology or anything else in philosophy, and and I think it was a problem probably in in uh, synagogue Judaism, which is. One's constantly cerebrating about these things, trying to understand them, which is which is perfectly. I mean, I do it all the time. But suddenly, here comes along somebody who understands, and one says, "Well, how does he understand?" Well, let's see. How do I understand? Well, I understand by putting two and two together and knowing about syllogisms and argumentation and so on. And he understands by standing on that which is under. You see, hypostasis. He grounded it. It's very difficult for me to tell 
when I'm being led by the Spirit and when I'm being taken on a wild goose chase. And sometimes the Spirit starts off with a wild goose chase, so you can't you can't uh, write the whole thing off too quickly. You have to wait and see where this thing is going. And this week I had some notes prepared, and uh, everything's going along fine. And then on Wednesday, shortly before I went to Santa Rosa for the for the Santa Rosa class, I was reading the New York Times, and there was this article, and I saw it, and I sensed instantly that I was about to be pulled into this thing, <laughs> and that my whole all the notes I'd prepared were about to go down the tubes. And I, and I literally tried to resist. I think, I better not read that article because I'll get into it and no telling what will happen to my class preparation. And I tried to resist it and then I didn't. And so it, and it, it, had, it changed things. And I'll, I'll get to the article later. But anyway, I just say that to begin with because to this moment I'm not quite sure whether it's a wild goose chase or the spirit. I think it's the spirit, but there may be a wild goose chase aspect of it at least in the beginning so i hope you'll i hope you'll uh, tolerate it let me just say what i'm trying to do you probably know but it may not be perfectly clear my feeling is that we're living in a in the midst of a very profound crisis the word crisis is overused but i think it applies to to the transition that's going on in our world and that the scope and nature of the crisis has by and large eluded us so we tend to interpret the crisis like the like the blind men and the elephant you know we tend to interpret the crisis in terms of uh, whatever little uh, expertise or uh, perspective we we might have to begin with uh, but it's I think a larger one, and so my, and so because I've learned uh, so much from uh, the work of Girard, I think the way to approach the this crisis is anthropology and ontology. Question of how culture comes to be and how how being human being in that unique ontological sense. Um, comes to be and how it's substantiated so that's kind of been my my approach now fundamentally what excites me and what gives me energy for all of this is that this approach the anthropological and ontological approach to the modern crisis puts one I think in touch with the biblical tradition in a very powerful and vivid way and I feel that the world needs the biblical revelation, particularly the Christian revelation, desperately. But the problem is uh, the tradition remains largely obscure to us. And we relegate it to some piety or to something, some ancient thing that was relevant to the first century or some, something like that. And I'm reminded of two things. Gerard often talks about the fact that the the modern world has has yet to catch up with the Bible, particularly the New Testament. So we have to catch up with it. It's ahead of us. And in the same vein, Andrew McKenna says, the Bible understands us better than we understand ourselves. And our business ought to be to try to use the Bible so as to understand ourselves as well as it understands us. And I think that's absolutely true. And so what I've been trying to do is to is to see the modern problem in these larger frames of reference so that then one can turn to the biblical text, particularly the New Testament text, and suddenly feel its power. For example, I think that the anthropological approach, the one that sees the, the relationship between re, uh, religion and violence and the whole mimetic process, what Hamilton Kelly calls the, the generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism, sees that as culturally fundamental uh, once you once you have that approach take that approach then you turn to the new testament and there you have the, the crucifixion and uh, all that that comes from that and about half of the new testament suddenly becomes unbelievably powerful and relevant and i think the other half becomes powerful and relevant when one raises ontological questions uh, and and these ontological questions are forced upon us today because 
just as you know, just as from the point of view of the social sciences, if we see certain problems going on, and we try to address these problems in terms of criminology, uh, typical social science, uh, political uh, changes of one sort or another, sociological analyses, etc., uh, etc. Et All of these are relevant and helpful. I'm not saying we should do without them, but they don't go to the root. And so until they're informed by something, at least, that goes to the root, they're probably just going to shuffle things around on the surface and not get to the heart of it. And likewise, in the, in, in the realm of psychological issues or spiritual issues, as long as we don't see the fundamental question, which is, which, which is ontology, the nature of being in the specifically human sense, I think that once we register that as, as what's at stake, in the modern world, then the other half of the New Testament suddenly becomes unbelievably powerful. And so everything I'm doing today is, is an attempt to set us up to read a few verses in the Gospel of John as if for the first time, so that when we read them, we can sense or feel their power and significance. And I used another text from John last week, but, uh, but I want to do more or less the same, take more or less the same approach. 500 years from now, people will probably understand both the anthropological and ontological implications of these New Testament texts far better than we do. And when they look back on our typical understanding of these texts or the way in which we interpreted them and brought them into our lives, they may, they may see what we did with them as being well-intentioned and to somewhat helpful, but a little bit like how we look back on people hundreds of years ago who used leeches, you know, to, to cure their diseases. And we, we realize, well, it was well-intentioned and so on, but didn't really go to the heart of the matter. Or people who, uh, the, the image that came to me, <laughs> crazy, crazy image came to me, was um, we're like people standing on the rim of a rumbling volcano, uh, throwing selected herbs into it, hoping to calm it. Uh, and cure it of its potential uh, violence and confusion. And I think we have something at hand much more powerful and much more significant, and we just have to find out how to, uh, how to reap its harvest. And so that's, that's what I'm trying to do, I think. The crisis that has the world by the throat is a crisis that's worldwide, but because the most powerful element in this crisis is the biblical revelation. Those cultures closer to that, more exposed to the biblical revelation, to the Christian tradition, are, ha are experience a different form of the crisis than the others. The whole world is experiencing it. Uh, Gerard likes to say uh, the Gospels Christianized the West, which doesn't mean it made everybody Christian. It just means it it introduced Christian sensibilities into the West very gradually. So he says the, the gospel Christianized the West and the West is westernizing the world. And so no doubt these are attenuated forms of the biblical revelation. Still in all, as I've said many times, the, the, the West's political institutions, its moral sensibilities and so on cannot be explained except by reference to the New Testament. And so even though these have particularly since the Enlightenment, uh, disassociated themselves very largely from any explicit religious roots. That's where they were born. And so th as these things go out into the world, they carry with them, if you will, the gospel virus. So wherever they're... And, and every time you see a journalist with a camera on his shoulder, he's carrying the virus. He's carrying the virus because wherever he shows up, he'll want to interview the, vic the victims. You see what I mean? And all of that. And he'll want to make sure that the that human rights are being respected, or she will want to make sure that human rights are being respected and so on. These are, these are Western, what we call Western values, but to call them Western values is ridiculous. I mean, it's okay, but it's like calling them family values or something that doesn't really explain the, the issue. Uh, they are attenuated forms of the revelation uh, of the New Testament. But I think that we can still clearly see a different response to this crisis in, quote-unquote, the Western world, that is to say the world most 
exposed to the, to the biblical revelation, and the rest of the world, the world that's less exposed or exposed only to attenuated forms of it. Every place just about today is exposed to enough of it to be in crisis. There are very few cultures left that are not... There are very few cultures left that have not been destabilized by the forces that have, that have been uh, destabilizing Western culture for hundreds of years. Destabilizing is a negative word. We could use the word liberating, you see, because to some extent it is liberating. It's, it's loosening up the old structures of the old cultural apparatus. So that's both liberating and uh, and perilous in the sense of, of structures falling apart. Well, I've been through this before. I don't want to get caught up in it again. But just in a general way, there's a general schemata that I'm using to think through these things today. And it is this, that in the non-Western world, the sacrificial system of the non-Western world has not been jeopardized as as thoroughly as the sacrificial system in the Western world. And therefore, the response in the non-Western world is often to regenerate conventional culture sacrificially. And when I say West here, I don't, because it's happening in lots of places that are part of the Western world. It's happening in Northern Ireland, it's happening in Bosnia, it's happening in, uh, uh, you know, all, a lot of places. But but nevertheless, I think the schemata that, that I'm trying to describe to you holds more or less, and that is that there are places less powerfully influenced or who have been momentarily able to throw off the influence who are tr that try to, to respond to this crisis by regenerating culture sacrificially, the old form of cultural consensus. In the West, that has, that has proven over the course of the last few hundred years to be less and less effective. And, and the West's response now has been, or the West response for the last uh, few hundred years, has been what, what I think we call individualism. That is to say, as the, as the system that generates culture, as cult the cultural apparatus itself, has become more morally problematic, people have awakened from, are no longer caught up in it. Its gravitational power is weakened by the biblical revelation. And therefore, there are people who wake up in the midst of its rituals and, and have, a moral, have moral misgivings about them. And this is, this is unheard of in the, in the antique world, virtually unheard of in the antique world. But that has happened almost en masse in the Western world over the last couple of hundred years. And as it's happened, more and more people find themselves experiencing what we call, quote, individuality, which is, a, which is an improper interpretation of what's going on, one that, that flatters the, quote, individual, because he or she then thinks, well, the reason I see all these moral, the moral problem with this system is because I'm morally superior to it, and uh, I'm going to, you know, walk my own path, march to a different drummer, all of that kind of, uh, th that kind of ideology of the individual. And it wasn't individuality at all. It was the fact that the biblical tradition was, was wearing down the system that made individual, quote unquote, individuality impossible. What makes individuality impossible is a, is a, uh, is a powerfully cathartic, religiously cathartic social uh, uh, event that destroys all, quote unquote, individuality, that, that creates a complete unanimity. And as that thing broke down under the, under the uh, relentless power of the New Testament, more and more people found themselves outside of its purview, outside of its gravitational field, and interpreted that experience as individuality. I've been over this before, but the point I'm trying to make is, I think in a general way, all generalizations are, are false, really, but in a general way, I think we could see two responses to the crisis. One is to try to kickstart the sacrificial system uh, and convene an old-fashioned culture, the old anthropos that Paul, what Paul called the old humanity, and on the other hand, to walk away from it thinking that individuality is a viable, in, modern individuality, enlightenment individuality, is a viable alternative to it. And both of those are, both of those approaches are collapsing in our world. Now, we in the West are 
famous for, take the Cold War, for example. We think, well, we won. They lost, we won, communism's over, uh, capitalism's doing fine, and so on and so on. And it's one of those situations where we see the speck in our brother's eye and we don't see the beam in our own. We don't realize what's happening here right now. The peril, what, if you just look to communism and capitalism, what you have are two versions of Enlightenment liberalism. And uh, the fact that the, that the one in the, in the East, so to speak, quote unquote, in the East, the fact that it collapsed, it collapsed a couple of decades before the other one doesn't mean anything fundamentally. The question is, what's going on? And I think it's affecting both of us. So anyway, if we take that same kind of paradigm and look at the world at large, we can see the two, two, two uh, reflexes. One is to, to try to... Uh, to uh, create the idolatry of culture again, or religion slash culture again, and the other is the idolatry of the individual, and both are both uh, are unsustainable projects, and this is why we're in such a in such a crisis. And the question is: Is there something? Is there a sustainable response? Is there a plausible, civilizing, humanizing uh, response that is sustainable? and true and I think there is and I think it's in the New Testament it, that sound, makes me sound like a uh, evangelist but I, I, I think it's true and I uh, think we ought to test it to see if it is anyway if you look at some of these things that are happening in these two realms I'm talking about one is the realm in which the old sacrificial system is one is the realm in which people are trying to revive the old sacrificial system and the other is the realm in which individuality is posed as a plausible alternative to it. If you look, all you have to do is scratch the surface of these things that we see as uh, civil wars, uh, political conflicts all over the world. Almost all political conflicts in the world today are civil wars of one kind or another. And if you scratch them at all with any kind of anthropological curiosity, you see the sacrificial structure of the whole thing. You see that the political rationale is completely secondary to some kind of mechanism that's at work in these structure in these conflicts, and you you recognize the the sacrificial roots of the of the phenomena. In the West, quote unquote, something is happening that's somewhat like that, and that is to say, something is giving way, and we can see something underneath it that reveals something about individuality that we didn't suspect and that is that it isn't grounded in something sustainable so what I would say the way I would put it is this that the phenomenon taking place in the non-western world is the revival of the sacrificial system and what we see there if we look closely is the primitive sacred emerging again the, the attempted re-emergence of the primitive sacred under some kind of political explanation some kind of social rationale and so on, uh, ideological justification. But the emergence of the primitive sacred, it's not going to work, but it's still emerging. It comes out of a very ancient, the most ancient social and psychological reflex. In the West, individualism is turning into nihilism. And I think this is a, a, an unbelievably important thing. 